0: Most loving Pranams at Bhagwan's Lotus Suite. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai, coming to you live from our studios at Prashantinilam. This is a series where we go through verse by verse the beautiful work called the Bhagavad Gita. The meaning of the title of that work, Bhagavad Gita itself, means the song of the divine we are into about the sixth episode today we're going to be doing the sixth episode of that series and honestly speaking the song of the divine has not yet begun it comes only towards the beginning of the second chapter which we have not yet started we are still in the first chapter of that beautiful book and this is referred to as the arjuna vishada yoga which means that quest which is born out of the despondency of Arjuna, that is what this chapter is about. And uh, we've been going through this for the past couple of weeks. We're going to continue that. I'm not sure if we'll be able to conclude this chapter today because there are some very important things that I would like to elaborate upon when we go through these verses. But before that, as always, I'll give you a brief summary of what we went through last week. Last week, we went through the verses from 25 to 34 of the first chapter. And I mentioned how the Arjuna Vishada Yoga actually begins at verse 25 when Krishna takes the chariot right to the middle of the battlefield as requested by Arjuna and tells him, look Arjuna, you're in the middle of the battlefield and look at the armies which have gathered to fight. And that is when Arjuna's Vishada or Arjuna's despondency that led to an introspection actually begins. Because Arjuna doesn't see warriors and soldiers, enemies and allies, but he sees matulan, Bratran, Putran, Pautran and Acharyan. In other words, he sees people whom he recognizes as Swajanam or his own people. And when he sees his own people instead of the warriors who have come to fight, he says that I seem to have lost the will to fight. He goes on to say in a very beautiful poetic verse, he says, Timamagatrani, my limbs have become weak. Mukam cha My mouth is drying up. Vepatuscha sharire me. My entire body is trembling. Roma jayate. My hair is standing on end. Gandivam samsate hastat. The Gandiva, the great bow of Arjuna, he says, is slipping from my hand. And these are all the symptoms of nervousness which has suddenly come upon Arjuna, the great warrior, because... After coming to the battlefield, he does not see enemies who are assembled to fight him. He sees his own people, his own teachers, his own fathers and grandfathers and brothers and cousins and uncles who have gathered to fight against him. And that is making him weak. And then he says how the victory that he so much desired till the run-up of the battle suddenly seems not so rosy now. He says that the victory does not please him anymore. The kingdom which would come as a result of that victory doesn't seem to be pleasing anymore and the pleasures that come with the kingdom also do not seem as pleasing as before. And why does he feel that way? He says because for whose sake that we thought we would win this kingdom and we would rule it, all of them are assembled here ready to fight and die. So whom are we going to enjoy this success with? That is the question that Arjuna was raising the last time when we were going through the chapters. and. I also explained how Arjuna's vishada despondency was different from the despondency of somebody like Dhritarashtra because he was also despondent but Arjuna's despondency was clearly being born out of a very broad heart because he does not look at only the enemies or only his own side and say that these are my people he looks at all of them and say that you know all of these people are my people yes they've wronged me yes they've been treating us unfairly but that doesn't take away the fact that these are also brothers and uncles and my own people and the other way of looking at it probably is if not to him they are dear to somebody else at least and it would not be fair to take part in this battle which would result in such enormous casualty and that's what stops Arjuna and I had spoken of how from Vignana Arjuna had traveled to the state of Sugnana which is born out of broad-mindedness but what one has to reach is Pragnana, the ultimate or the supreme knowledge and that is what Krishna is going to take him to. So we're going to continue with this Arjuna Vishadha Yoga. It's quite interesting that we're taking a break at this point where we had I think logically taken a break last week because till the point where uh, Arjuna spoke last week, the verses that we went through were probably the crux of the matter. What exactly was bothering Arjuna was revealed by him in those verses that we went through last week. The Arguments that we are going to go through today are going to be a little different, and it's going to be interesting to see the arguments that Arjuna places. Because this particular chapter of Bhagavad Gita, where the student's mind is being revealed, is something that we all can really look into deeply and learn from. Because this is human psychology, this is how our minds work, this is how arguments go on in our mind, and that is why this is a very important chapter. For us to understand ourselves, how we delude ourselves, how we come up with arguments. As we go through the verses that we are going through today, you will see what I mean by saying that this is a beautiful insight into human psychology itself. So as I said, we have completed till verse number 34. We'll continue with the 35th verse. The last time some people felt that I was a bit too fast. That's what some people said. It would be good if I can slow down a little. So I'll try not to rush through the shlokas. I think the shlokas that we're going to go through today also will need a little bit more of explaining. So it will be slow naturally, but I'll also try to be slower in in the way I share my thoughts. So we'll go to the 35th verse of chapter number one. As always, these are being rendered by our brother Sham and alumnus of our university from the city of Chennai and Balvikas Guru, very grateful to him. For giving us this very beautiful and very clear rendition. A lot of people have written appreciating the diction and the clarity with which these verses are being chanted. I join you all in thanking Brother Shyam for giving us this beautiful rendition. Let's listen to the verse 35 of chapter number one of the Bhagavad Gita.
1: Ye These
0: I do not wish to kill, though they kill me, O Krishna. Even for the sake of dominion over the three worlds, leave alone killing them for the sake of the earth. That's the meaning of this verse. Arjuna again asks this question, as I said, why should I fight when all those for whom I would have wanted this victory, a kingdom, the pleasures that come with the kingdom, all are here to fight and die. So he's continuing with that argument as to why one has to strive to take part in a battle like this, which is eventually going to lead to a mind-boggling catastrophe. So he goes on to say in this verse, Api Traylokhya Rajasya heto ho even for the overlordship over the three worlds, this battle is not worth fighting. That's what he says, even if you're going to give me the three worlds as a reward for the victory that I will achieve through this battle, he's saying this is not a battle worth fighting. So when a battle is not worth fighting for overlordship or victory over three worlds, he says, "Kimnu then after all, for this small piece of worth, What is the worth of fighting this battle? That's what he says. Even for the three worlds, it is not worth killing the people who are your own people in a battle like this. And why will I kill them? For after all, a piece of land which we call a kingdom, right? If we were to look at the map of the ancient India, where these various kingdoms are being spoken about, they were considered very, very vast kingdoms. But one thing we'll have to remember is, the mode of transport those days was only probably by walk or by horse cart or by bullock carts so which means when we say a very large kingdom it could be in our terms given our modern means of transport it could be very very small kingdoms so even Hastinapura which was supposed to be a grand empire was not extremely large it was still contained within this what was called the Bharatvarsha or the Indian subcontinent right so he says it is after all a piece of land on this earth why would I want to kill all these venerated people and dear ones for, after all, a piece of land? And uh, probably Arjuna understands that he might be lured with a larger reward for the victory. And that's why he says that it is not worth it. Because Arjuna's thinking here is very, very clear. Arjuna knows what are the fundamentals that he is looking at. For example, let me explain that. Let's say, I need health for enjoying life, right? If you were to come and offer me a job that is going to, say, destroy my health and it's going to destroy it completely and irreversibly, let's say, and you tell me that I'll give you a salary of a lakh per month and that's very, very alluring, but I would say that what is the point of having one lakh per month if I cannot enjoy it because I will not be having good health? And then you make me another offer and you say that, okay, you do the same work, I'll give you five lakhs as remuneration. If I'm a greedy person or if I'm uh, not a very sensible person, I would probably take that offer because for 5 lakhs, it seems to be worth it. But if I'm actually very sensible, I will realize that if I cannot enjoy even 1 lakh remuneration with bad health, I am definitely not going to be able to enjoy 5 lakhs or any amount more that you're going to give me, right? So the idea is, if the price that we pay for achieving something is going to be something so fundamental that makes us incapable of enjoying what we receive as a reward then even if you make what i receive in the form of remuneration or reward enormous or increase the stakes enormously i should still find it unworthy because it's fundamentally taking away things which are needed for me to enjoy what you are giving me right so that is what arjuna is saying is arjuna's logic is the same here He says, I don't want the kingdom because the price I pay for that is so fundamental. The lives of all these people without whom I cannot enjoy the kingdom. And he, as I said, maybe senses that Krishna will tell him, you know, now the kingdom is only this much. But once you become the rulers of Hastinapur, once Yudhishthira becomes the king, then he can probably annex more lands, he can probably expand his kingdom. The borders could expand from one end of the subcontinent to the other, make it larger. So he might think that Krishna might put forth this proposition that, you know, don't look at it as a small kingdom. But once being the great warriors that all you five brothers are, once you become the emperors of this land, probably you could expand. So immediately Arjuna is saying that, you know, even to enjoy a small piece of earth, I need all of these people who are assembled here to be alive for me to enjoy with them. So if you were to tell me that I can expand my kingdom, I still would find that reward unworthy because it is fundamentally taking away that which is required by me to be able to enjoy the success and the pleasure that comes out of that success. So that's why Arjuna says, Even for the overlordship of the three worlds, I find this battle unworthy of participating in. Let's go to the next verse, the verse number 36, and I will give you the meaning at the end of it, and then we'll talk about it.
1: Nihatyadhartarashtranahan Kapritjanardana Papame Vashray Dasman Hattvaitana Tata Yinaha By killing
0: these sons of Dhritarashtra, what pleasure can be ours, O Janardana? Only sin will accrue to us from killing these fellows. So that's the meaning of verse number 36. In this verse, Arjuna asks, naha. By killing the sons of Dhritarashtra, ka pritihi syat janardana. What pleasure is there to be got, O Janardana? This is the question that Arjuna is asking. Well, no one fights in a war for pleasure. Killing can never give a person pleasure. If there is somebody who is drawing pleasure from killing... He must be a demon or he must be a psychopath, right? Nobody draws pleasure out of killing. So Arjuna is saying, I'm going to kill all of these people. I'm going to take part in this battle. And he says, even if it is the wicked Duryodhana and his brothers, there must be some pleasure as a result of this killing. The killing itself is not going to give me pleasure. But what I'm going to achieve at the end of this war, that should give me some pleasure. But Arjuna says, I don't see anything like that, right? He is so befuddled in his mind he's saying that even when I kill these people who are supposed to be my enemies my tormentors I don't see any pleasure coming out of it right also Arjuna has been saying that all these people for whom I want to win will all die right and whenever he's saying this we know that he's referring to probably his Guru Dronacharya he's referring to his grandfather Bhishma he's referring to his other Guru Kripacharya and there are those other people who are actually good in his opinion, and people who are by force as part of the army on the other side. So these are all people whom Arjuna is fond of and who's saying that without them I cannot enjoy this victory that I will win. And everybody knows that definitely Duryodhana is not featuring in those people whom he is fond of, right? And even if he was to be victorious, definitely Duryodhana is not going to come and celebrate it with him. Duryodhana is one person who is going to make his life even more miserable if at all he manages to win and let's say Duryodhana survives the battle. So there is no way Duryodhana is going to be counted in those people whom Arjuna requires to be alive to be able to enjoy success at the end of it. And that's why Arjuna is saying that uh, he knows that this could probably be an argument that Krishna might put forth. So Arjuna specifically says even by killing them the sons of Dhritarashtra, Duryodhana and his brothers, I don't think I will get any pleasure. And he knows that the next argument could be, you may not get pleasure now, but it will lead to merit, it will lead to punyam, right? That's the other way of looking at it. The obvious result of it might not be so pleasurable, but you will get merit or punyam in that sense. Those are all brownie points that you cannot understand. It's not encashable within the world maybe, or within this lifetime. But those are all points that you gain, literally in that sense. So he knows that probably Krishna might put forth this argument that you don't see any pleasure now. I understand that. But this is going to give you punyam because you are doing the right thing. So Arjuna is quick to say that I think we will only get sin if we kill these aggressors. That's what uh, Arjuna says. Even if we were to kill these aggressors, I don't think there's going to be any merit that, that is going to come out of it. We are only going to gather sin in the process. In these two verses that we went through, the verse number 35 and 36, Arjuna refers to Krishna as Madhusudana and Janardana. Right? These are two words which we'll keep repeating many times in the future in the Bhagavad Gita too. These are names which we are familiar with. We use these names in many of the bhajans that we sing. These two names which are given to Lord Krishna, actually they are names of Lord Vishnu. And because Krishna is an avatar of Vishnu, He is also referred to with these names. But these two names have a very important meaning. And probably Arjuna is using these names to drive home a point. Vishnu is given the name Madhusudana because he kills a demon by name Madhu. And this is not when Vishnu is in the avatar of Krishna. This is much before. I think in the very beginning of creation, there is this demon or two demons, Madhu and Kaitabha. I think we've spoken about it even in our Bhagavad Satsang. These two demons, they steal from Brahma, the Vedas. And when we say they steal the Vedas, it means the code of conduct with which man has to live in society, the order in society, that which would be the basis of that kind of knowledge. These two demons steal it from Brahma. And Brahma goes and appeals to Lord Vishnu to come and help him. And that is when Lord Vishnu takes this avatar which has a face of a horse. Hayagriva, right? He takes the avatar of Hayagriva, defeats Madhu and Kaitaba and then retrieves the Vedas. So the name Madhusudana, though it means that the killer of the demon Madhu, the name Madhusudana itself means one who steps in when there is an aggressor, when there is somebody who is stealing, somebody who is doing something unrighteous. Brahma goes and complains to him and Vishnu steps in and punishes the one who has offended or who is the aggressor right that is the name madhusudana and the name janardana actually also means the same thing this is a name which is mentioned in vishnu sasana namam and the meaning of the word janardana itself means the one who punishes the evildoers right so when arjuna is referring to krishna as madhusudana and janardana he's saying krishna this is your work right he is referring to the sons of dhritarashtra as aggressors he uses the word Atatayinaha right? means an aggressor who is a, a wrongdoer who deserves to be punished. Right? They are referred to as Atatayinaha. So he refers to them as Atatayinaha and he looks at Krishna and says, O Madhusudana, O Janardana, suggesting that Krishna, here are the aggressors. You are the one who is supposed to punish the aggressors. And you are happily told that I will not pick up any arms, I will not fight in this battle. This is your duty. You know, almost like Arjuna is suggesting. This looks like it is your duty. These are the aggressors who need to be punished. And you're the one who is Janardana who punishes the evildoers. You're the one who is Madhusudana, to whom Brahma ran when he was wronged. And this is your duty. You're supposed to be doing this. And you have refused to take up arms. And should I participate in this battle, kill them and gather sin in the process, accumulate sin in the process, that is the question which Arjuna is asking. So this is the 36th verse. We will listen to the 37th verse. I'll give you the meaning of that. And then I'll tell you why this argument of Arjuna is wrong after we listen to the 37th verse.
1: tasman hantum Therefore,
0: we should not kill the sons of Dhritarashtra, our relatives. For how can we be happy by killing our own people, O Madhava? So that's the meaning of the 37th verse. So Arjuna summarizes what he feels and why he feels he should not kill the people on the other side. Like we often do our axioms and riders in mathematics or when we do a derivation in physics, we would end by saying thus proved. So thus I've made my point and this is what it is. And this is like a summary of whatever argument Arjuna has placed so far. But again, even in this verse, he uses the word swajanam, my people. And that is how he gives it away, by saying that his argument is actually not foolproof or argument is not dharmic why is that so in the earlier shloka arjuna uses a word which i said atatainaha the meaning of that word is an aggressor who is worthy of punishment right and how is such an aggressor defined or recognized according to dharma shastras i'm not exactly sure which is the dharma shastra which defines this term atatainaha i think there are many Dharma Shastras, as I've said. It comes in one of them. I'm not, I was not able to locate what it is, where it is. But this is the Shloka which defines this concept or this title or this name which is called Atatainaha. The verse goes, Agnido Garadas Chaiva Shastrapanil Danapaha Kshetradara Haraiscaiva Shadetehi Atatainaha This is the word which defines who can be categorized as atatainaha or aggressors who deserve to be punished. And who are they? Agnida, an arsonist, one who sets fire to others' property. Garada, one who gives poison to others. Shastrapanir, one who attacks another person who is unarmed, who is not carrying a weapon himself. Danapaha, one who steals another's money. Kshetrahara, one who illegally occupies and possesses another's land, and Darahara, one who kidnaps another's wife. So these are the various sins for which one can be branded as an Atataina and who deserves a punishment, right? And one or any more of these sins, if anybody has performed, then that person deserves a punishment. And if you look at it, you can see that most of these descriptions actually fit Duryodhana and his brothers because they've done all of this they try to set fire to the entire Pandava family they try to poison Bhima when he was a small kid they've performed all of these sins and they deserve to be punished and all of these offenses can be punished by a kshatriya a warrior or a representative of a king is entitled to mete out punishment or mete out justice in the form of punishment to people who come under this category of atitaina. In the Ramayana there is this very beautiful episode which is much debated about where Rama steps in and in order to settle the score between Sugriva and Vali, we all know that, I'm not going to go back into that entire story, where Sugriva's wife has been abducted by his own elder brother Vali and he is made to live in the forest and Sugriva makes friends with uh, Rama and Rama tells him that you know he will fight for his justice. And that is how he eventually shoots down Vali. So at that point, there is this dialogue between Vali and Rama. Vali is a very noble person who probably for a brief time, his mind was corrupted by the anger which he felt. He did not see that that his brother was not on the wrong side. But the moment this scene happens where Rama shoots down Vali, so there is this very beautiful dialogue which happens between Vali and Rama. And one of the things that Vali asks Rama is, See, I understand why you've done this because your wife has been abducted and you need support to go to Lanka and defeat Ravana and get back your wife, Mother Sita. But he says, if an ally is what you wanted, any day I would have been a stronger ally for you in this task than my brother Sugriva. Because there's another anecdote how Vali was one of the few people who could defeat Ravana in a one-to-one battle. So, Vali says that you should have taken my support, you know, instead of going to Sugriva who is in the forest and then coming and uh, shooting me down, you could have come directly to me and I would have helped you and I, I have all the armies under my command. And it is at that point that Rama says, you know, I did not ally with Sugriva because I needed his help. He says, you have wronged him and I have shot you down as a punishment. It is not because I need an ally and that's why I'm doing this favor for him. And then. Rama goes on to explain how even Kishkinda comes under the overlordship of the emperor of Ayodhya and as one of the princes, as one of the representatives of the crown, he is right on his part to punish anybody who comes under this definition of Atatainaha. And Sugriva was clearly one who had wronged his own brother and Rama says that as a Kshatriya what I have done is dharma. It is not only have the right to do this but it is also my responsibility and it is not because I want an ally, I've done this, what you did was a mistake and I've come to punish you, right? But here the same position Arjuna is and Arjuna is refusing to punish there are these scores of a 100 of them in front of him and Arjuna is refusing to punish them and why is he refusing to punish them? Because he is saying Swajanam Krishna, they are my people O oh Krishna, how can I attack them? right? So this is the same mistake which Dhritarashtra does too and that is the reason for which the battle is taking place, right? Dhritarashtra knows and all of these sins of the Kauravas which I just said, you know, trying to burn the Pandavas down, trying to poison them, trying to snatch their kingdom which is rightfully theirs, all of these mistakes the sons of Dhritarashtra are doing under the purview of Dhritarashtra himself. Of course, he does not command them to do it But he knows that these are the mistakes that his sons have done. But he does not have the will to punish them because he says, How can I punish my own children? How can I banish my own dear son, Duryodhana, to the forest because he's done this mistake? So his attachment to his sons are blinding his idea of righteousness. And that is exactly the same thing which is happening to Arjuna. These are aggressors. He is a kshatriya. He is within his rights and it is within his responsibilities to punish these Atitai but he refuses because he says, but they are my people. Right? And that is why it is fundamentally wrong. Though his argument seems very sound, though his argument seems very pious, it seems very good. In many ways, it is very very similar to the stance which Dhritarashtra took. It was very easy for us to look at Dhritarashtra and say that what he was doing was wrong, but it is becoming very difficult for us to say what Arjuna is doing is wrong, because Arjuna is wrong, but he is also good at heart. Arjuna is wrong, but also he is a little more broad-hearted as we saw last week. And that is why the Bhagavad Gita is a very, very important text because it is very easy for us to make a difference between black and white, good and bad. But what is apparent good and what is the true good, what is apparently right and what is really right, to differentiate from that, you need that sukshma buddhi. that intelligence of a superior order. And that is why the Bhagavad Gita is very important because it trains our mind and it encourages us to look at our problems, our life from that attitude. So we'll proceed in this. Next recording I'm going to play is of verses 38 and 39 because it's one sentence spread across two shlokas. We'll listen to that and then I'll give you the meaning and we'll discuss about that.
1: Yadya piete napashyanti, Lobho pahata cheta saha, Kulakshayakrtam dosham, Mitradrohe chapatakam, Kathan nagnya masma DOSHAM Though they,
0: with intelligence overpowered by greed, see no evil in the destruction of families and no sin in hostility to friends, why should not we who clearly see evil in the destruction of families learn to turn away from this sin, O Janardana? That's the meaning of verse 38 and 39. So Arjuna's arguments are still not over and actually this is the point where Arjuna's arguments have to be looked at deeply and we will have something to learn from it. In these verses Arjuna says lobha upahata They are unable to see because their minds are clouded and overpowered by greed. So whatever Arjuna explained so far and is going to explain further is actually going to be simple logic right both pandavas and kauravas were brought up in the same value system it's not that they were brought up separately in that sense for a very long time they were brought up in the same value system under the kuru clan they learned the nuances of right conduct from the same gurus dronacharya kripacharya and partially from the minister vidura also And they've been brought up in the same lineage, they've been brought up under the same guidance of the same elders in the family. So it is not that the Kauravas don't know. It is not that the Kauravas are not able to see what Arjuna is seeing. They also understand all of this logic which he has given. It's very simple logic as I said. And Duryodhana and all the others, even if you forget Duryodhana, there were other sensible people there. They were all able to see this, that what they're doing is wrong and this is going to be the end. Right? whether the Pandavas are going to win the battle or the Kauravas are going to win the battle, whatever Arjuna has said so far applies to both sides. They're going to wipe out a large amount of the population and there is not going to be much pleasure to have at the end of it. right? So Arjuna is making a very beautiful point here. Arjuna says, pashyanti, they are not able to see the obvious. Why? Lobha upahata because their minds are clouded. And clouded by what? It's clouded by greed. The perception is clouded by this strong sense of greed. That's what he says. This is so obvious. Whatever I've told to you Krishna is so obvious. But they're not able to see the obvious because their minds are clouded by this deep sense of greed that they have. And what are they not able to see? kulakshayakritam dosham What a mistake it is to destroy one's own family. Mitra drohe chapatakam and the sin that comes when you betray a friendly person or a person of friendly disposition, right? But then Arjuna goes on to say, but our intelligence is not clouded. Their intelligence is clouded, but our intelligence is not clouded. He says, we are able to see. Oh Krishna, we can see very clearly. Why? Because we have no greed. What will then be the difference between those whose intelligence is clouded and us whose intelligence is not clouded? What a beautiful argument this is, isn't it? Forget the part that Arjuna is also very similarly drawn to unrighteousness by Dhritarashtra. I just said that before I played out these clips for you. But nevertheless, this argument is a very, very good argument and very important for us to learn something from this. So, even though technically Arjuna's arguments are wrong because of the fundamental flaw that he is actually hesitating because he considered all of these people as his own people, but he's making a very important point that greed blinds even the most well-educated. And at such times, those who do not have greed should be able to guide those who are clouded by greed. right? And similarly, all of these other vices that Swami would often speak about, jealousy, anger, and hatred, all of these tend to cloud a person's thinking. right? So when we look at a person, when we look at the upbringing of a child, we can always... Give the right kind of inputs from outside, right? You can tell the child what is right and what is wrong. But if we do not teach the child or teach the person the means of getting rid of these inner vices, which Swami would speak so often about, the importance to get rid of all of these important things that you have to get rid of, because without these, all knowledge is useless, right? That's what Swami would repeatedly say. All knowledge is useless if these fundamental flaws are not done away with. And that is what Arjuna is saying here. See, these are all people, they've been taught by the same elders, they've been taught by the same guru. They have the common family values and value uh, culture, right? But still they are not able to see what I'm able to see or what we are able to say merely because their intelligence is so thickly clouded by greed. right? So that is why this point which he's making is very, very important. The one who is calm can see more clearly So when we are in anger, let us say that we have been taken over by anger and jealousy or greed, even if we are slightly in anger, it would be a good idea for us to turn to somebody who is a little more calm than us and unbiased and clear in opinion and seek their understanding of the situation, right? And that's why the idea of turning to a person who is outside of our situation, outside of a problem always helps, right? And that's what we did for so long in the Radio Sai Answering Booth. Here, I was probably sitting as the middle person. The entire wisdom was in Swami's words. The problem was in front of me. I did not attach myself to the problem. I could clearly take out what Swami says as the solution to a problem and give it to you because I am not under the influence of the emotions that the problem puts on that person, right? So that is what Arjuna is saying, that you could have all the intelligence. I could have heard a thousand discourses from Swami, but if I have not got over... My feeling of despondency, my ability to go into depression or my greed or my anger or my jealousy. At the moment when I need it, I will not be able to see clearly, right? So it makes sense to turn to a person who is calmer than us, who is probably not under the sway of those emotions and seek that person's guidance and help, right? So that is one of the things that we can take from this. And invariably, there'll be the other point that I wanted to make in this is, Actually, at this point or even the point before this, Arjuna's real reasons are over. As I said, the real fundamental reason is he sees all of these people as his own people, right? But now Arjuna wants to start building his case. And this is something that we typically do. And I always think of this as, I speak of these as reasons and causes for the decision that we make. See, invariably when we make a decision or we choose to do one thing over the other, there will be one cause for us to do something or make that choice. But to make our argument strong, one to ourselves and to the people around us, we will start looking around for more reasons to prop up this decision that we have made. Let me try and give you a very simple example. Let us say that I had some other work this evening and I'm not able to do the program live. Some of the activity which is calling my attention and I cannot spare my time to come and do this radio show. And I'm planning to play some old file for you. And I come and make an announcement before I play that file and I'm, I say I'm very sorry, I have this other assignment. So I'm not able to do the show. But then let's say I add another few statements by saying that, you know, but it's also Navratri. So I feel that each one of you will also have prayers to do in your house. You will have celebrations in your house. So I thought it'll be good for me not to do this live so that you can do your other work now that will become an add-on reason in is what i'm trying to say that never featured when i made my decision my decision was based on the fact that i had something else to do but i'm adding this other reason or these prop reasons to make my reason sound probably less selfish right as though i have thought about you also when i was making this decision and these are kind of things that we always do when we are making decisions this is not always wrong. I'm not saying that this is a blunder or this is a mistake that we do. When we make any decision, especially when we make a right one, it is not wrong to reinforce it with such add-on reasons. You know, These are actually ancillary in nature. It's not important. These reasons are not actually important, but they help us because you know when we have to do something, especially when we have made a decision to do something which is the right course of action, the mind will try to draw us in different ways. So the mind has to be completely captured and it has to be given many other reasons and say that, you know, your intelligence will point out and say that this is the reason I have to do this particular task. But then you give the mind many other reasons so that the mind also comes along in this task that you're taking up. So that is why it is not always a wrong thing to do of adding these ancillary reasons to this main cause so that we're able to do what we're able to do. But we should never forget that these are reasons which can be done away with and these are not the primary cause for what we are doing. And this is especially important when there is a crisis situation, when uh, you know, we are doing something and some of these ancillary reasons are challenged. And that is when, when we are in confusion, when we are in crisis, when you are trying to review the decision we have made, we should be very clear that this was the primary cause, these are all add-on reasons. I'll just try to explain that a little further because I don't think it was as clear as it should be. Let's say that in your childhood, you were fascinated with this idea of becoming a doctor, right? And you've probably seen a doctor at work or you've seen people in pain and you've seen how a doctor is able to come and alleviate that pain from people. or You've just seen that scene and it's a very moving scene for most of us that a person is able to give that kind of solace to another person. So you see a scene like that in your childhood and you're so drawn by that idea and you feel that, you know, when I grow up, I'll also become a doctor. So what is the primary cause for this decision that you've made that you want to help another person? If a person is in pain, I should be able to go and give relief to that person, right? So that is that pure feeling with which this decision was made. But as you grow up, you know, as you start maturing, you look around, you also see that, okay, doctors do professionally well in the sense they make a lot of money, right? Doctors do make a lot of money, they lead a comfortable life. And then you look around and you say, oh, doctors have a very good name in society. A lot of people have a lot of respect. And the moment you say it's a doctor, there are people who respect all of this. So when you go along in this path which you've chosen, the primary cause was, I want to become a doctor because I can remove the suffering and pain of others. But these are all other add-on reasons which come along the way. That yes, you can make a lot of money. Yes, it gives me a lot of uh, respect in society. Or probably other things, you know, my mother would be happy if I become a doctor. No, there's no doctor in my village. Whatever is this, all of these become add-on reasons. So at a point when you have to make a critical decision, let us say that you're making a decision completely based on which position is going to pay you better or which uh, offer is going to give you a better remuneration or is going to give you a better growth in your career at that time it is very important to go back to that fundamental cause which with which you started this decision in the first place instead of seeing that which is going to give me better career growth you'll have to go back and say that no but i started this profession so that i can help people so which decision is going to aid me in helping more people which decision is going to aid me in alleviating the suffering of more people right So that is why it is not wrong to add on these ancillary reasons to that primary cause. But we should remember what is the primary cause and what are the ancillary reasons. And that is when we will be able to stop ourselves and take a clearer path whenever there's a confusion or a crisis in that sense. So going back to Arjuna's thinking of here, Arjuna is also making a very similar mistake here. When there is a mistake in the fundamental or the foundation all the other arguments that you build on top of it will also become meaningless, right? That's what we're going to see when Krishna starts breaking down all of these arguments. So our arguments are then become so complex that we literally lose our way, right? If you look at what Arjuna's predicament is here, as we said, the fundamental cause for him to drop his Gandiva and say that I don't want to fight is he is seeing his people on both sides of the army. He's seeing that my people will die if I participate in this war. That is the fundamental reason, right? But now he is beginning to build further reasons. After this point, all the reasons that he's going to give are about reasons which probably he would have never thought about, but he is giving to make his decision appear more noble than it actually is, right? So that is what we have to keep in mind As I said, this is a chapter which shows us the kind of thinking which goes on in our mind, right? And we should be able to look at our own mind, look at our own thinking and say that, no, these are arguments which I have no meaning for, right? Which I'm giving just for the sake of giving, they are not the real reasons. And we should be able to break them down and say that this is not what we need. And when Krishna starts speaking, we will see... At one point, I don't know, I felt it when I read Krishna's arguments when it begins it feels like Krishna is hitting completely off the target, right? Because Arjuna has gone through so many arguments and his arguments are so beautiful in that sense. We think that, oh, I mean, this is very noble of Arjuna to think like this. But when Krishna starts speaking, he, in the modern lingo, he actually cuts through the crap, if I could say that. And he hits at the fundamental flaw in Arjuna's understanding, which is his attachment, which he says, these are all my people, right? But for now, Krishna is allowing Arjuna to build all his arguments. Just like I said, You know, I try to add on reasons that are of relevance to you to make my decision appealing even to you. That is what Arjuna is going to do in the next few verses. He is going to put forth arguments which Krishna will probably find difficult to refute because they are important to him. I think we might have time for one more verse. So we will listen to verse number 40 of the first chapter and i'll give you the meaning and we'll discuss about that
1: kulakshaye pranasyanti kuladharma sanatanah dharmene nashte kulam kritsram adharmo bibavatyuta with
0: the ruin of the family are totally destroyed the traditional rights and duties of the family. When rights and duties are destroyed, vice overpowers the entire family too. That's verse 40 of the first chapter. So what is the argument that Arjuna is giving? As I said, he's trying to now start to give arguments which are going to make his decision appear less selfish. And for that, what does he do? He gives an argument which might be lucrative to Krishna in that sense. I'll explain how that is. Arjuna knows very well that dharma or righteousness or establishment of dharma is very very dear to Krishna. And he knows well that Krishna has been siding with the Pandavas not because he likes them or not because he is Mother Kunti, Pandava's mother is his aunt or anything like that. And Arjuna has spent a considerable amount of time with Krishna. Swami would say how Arjuna and Krishna would go around, there are a lot of other adventures that they've done together. So Arjuna has spent a lot of time with Krishna and Arjuna is not an unintelligent person. So he knows, he has seen the pattern in which Krishna acts and what is the underlying motive of whatever he does. And in fact, there is the other episode when Yudhishthira has been advised to perform the Rajasuya Yajna. At that time, he's actually ruling over Indraprasta, And people tell him that now, since he's got all of his brothers who are so mighty and he is a very righteous king, he should probably perform the Rajasuya Yajna. And Yudhishthira turns to Krishna to take advice and he asks Krishna that, do you think I should do this Yajna? And Krishna tells that, yes, of course, you should do the Rajasuya Yajna. You are the right person to do it. Krishna does not tell Yudhishthira to do it because he can become an emperor supreme. Because when you perform this Rajasuya Yajna, you become, from a king, you become a Chakravatin, right? You become an emperor who has the right to question other kings, right? So Krishna does not tell Yudhishthira to do the Yagna and become an emperor because that lad glory to him. But Krishna's idea is, here is a very, very righteous king. And if he were to become an emperor, he has the right to interfere in the other small kingdoms and ensure that righteousness prevails in each one of those kingdoms. And Krishna makes this agenda of his very, very clear. So Arjuna knows that whatever Krishna does, whatever Krishna takes up, it is only for the furtherance of dharma, right? And so Arjuna knows that this is what Krishna always has in mind and the argument that he puts forth is to lure Krishna literally into the decision that he has made because he says in this battle almost all the entires of the entire clan and probably a few clans have, are going to be vanquished and going to be killed in this process of the war. It is likely that none of them will survive. What will happen then? He says in that verse, Kulakshaye Pranashyanti Kuladharmaha Sanatanaha. With the destruction of a good part of the Kula or race, the eternal Dharmic practices of that entire race, Sanatana he says, eternal Dharmic practices will be destroyed. How will they be destroyed? The people who are supposed to pass it on to the next generation, which are all the elders who have assembled there, they will all get killed in this battle. And then Arjuna says, a dharma will grip the entire clan. This is the argument that Arjuna places in front of Krishna because he knows that dharma is very, very dear to Krishna. He says, what is the fundamental reason why he does not want to fight? He does not want to fight because he sees all of the people assembled as his own people. But he puts forth this argument that by killing them, the dharma of the entire race is going to fall because all these people, as Swami would say, Dharma is not something which is an entity of its own. And dharma does not disintegrate or dharma does not decline, is what Swami would say. Only the practice of dharma declines and disintegrates. And that is what Arjuna is saying here. Here are all these people who are the practitioners of dharma. And by killing all of them, they will not pass on this idea of how to practice dharma to the people who are going to follow. Because not only the great warriors and the great kings who have assembled here, there's so many other citizens who have assembled here. You know, whenever there's a battle, the number of people that you recruit into your army also increases. All the able-bodied men in the kingdom will have to join the army. So in that sense, a lot of fathers and elder brothers and uncles, in that sense, need not be necessarily of the royal family, but even the citizens, all of them are going to participate in this battle and they will all be killed. And with them will go the Kula Dharma. The Kula Dharma which was Sanatana, which was eternal till that point in time because of one generation passing it on to the other. And in this battle, there is a chance that an entire generation or even a couple of generations are going to be wiped out. And with that, the passing on of this Kula Dharma will be interrupted. And with that, the overall Dharma of the society is going to fall. So he's placing a very, very lucrative and enticing argument in front of Krishna but as we said, Krishna is playing the role of a perfect counselor who is allowing his patient to pour out everything that is there in his mind. He's patiently waiting and biding his time before which he will start breaking down these arguments and tells Arjuna where he is wrong and how to correct himself. But that'll be a little more while before we come to that. Probably next week or probably the week after that, we'll conclude the Gita series this episode. With this shloka, the 40th shloka will continue after that. Thank you, dear listeners, for being with me. I most humbly offer this effort at Swami's Lotus Feet, expressing gratitude for this opportunity to go through these beautiful verses. And what Swami Himself has explained through many, many discourses, as Professor Venkatraman would oftentimes say, the 700 verses of the Bhagavad Gita have been expanded in the thousands of discourses that Bhagwan has given. So in that sense, He has given us this beautiful opportunity so look at the Bhagavad Gita, the Song Divine as well as go back into Swami's words in an attempt to explain and understand better what is told in the Bhagavad Gita. So thank you dear listener. Join me again next week for the next episode of the series. Happy listening.